Hey there, product security pros, David and Shlomi here. Hosting the Left to Our Own Devices podcast has been a privilege. During the past two years, we had the opportunity to chat with top product security minds from the likes of CISA, the FDA, Boston Scientific, Jaguar Land Rover, and many others. 20,000 listeners and 50 plus guests later, we thought it was time to take things to the next level and launch the first virtual conference for product security. Left to Our Own Devices, the conference. Join us on April 3rd, 9 a.m. EST for fascinating and practical sessions from the world's top product security minds across industry, government, and academia, entirely online and completely free. KPMG, Showstack & Associates, OpsRight, Valentium, and ASRG have already joined as partners or speakers. To sign up for free and save your spot, go to cybellum.com conference. That's C-Y-B-E-L-L-U-M dot com slash conference. See you there and enjoy the show. You're listening to Left to Our Own Devices, the podcast dedicated to everything product security. Our guest today is Dale Peterson. Dale is the founder of S4 Events, a consultant, a speaker, and a podcaster who is helping build the future of IoT and ICS security through numerous endeavors. He is one of the most important thought leaders in the ICS security space and continuously pushes the limit of this important practice. We're thrilled to have him on the show today. Dale, welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. So, you are such an important part of the industrial cybersecurity community. Can you share with us, please, how it all started? How did you get into ICS cybersecurity? Well, I got in a long time ago, actually, in 2000, when there really wasn't an industry. And it was funny, a water utility out west contacted my tiny firm with less than five people in IBM as two people who could do uh, an assessment of their SCADA system. I guess that was when there weren't many people with websites that said, cybersecurity. But anyways, we won that job. I didn't really know anything about SCADA or ICS, and it was a real eye-opener. We made some mistakes. Fortunately, it's water and things move very slowly in water, so we didn't cause any catastrophes. But I think from my point of view, just having spent the previous decade in banking security, banking cybersecurity, it was just so exciting to be out there seeing something physical, learning how these systems work, that I was hooked. So over the next three years, I kind of transitioned from banking and general purpose cybersecurity to a focus on ICS security. And since then, that's all I've been doing. And how did you get into security to begin with in, into the banking industry? <laughs> well, a happy accident. I, was at, I graduated from University of Illinois with a business degree and a lot of computer classes and kind of an aptitude for that. So I was going down the actuary path. But I wasn't really excited about that, so I went to the placement office <laughs> to take a test to be a diplomat with the State Department. Wow. But given I was kind of a typical college student, I was a week late to sign up for that. So, so the placement <laughs> office said, well, you missed that one. Here's a test from the National Security Agency. They're coming next week. You can take that one. And I didn't, again, this was 1984, so... No one really had heard of NSA. It was no such agency. I didn't know what they did. I, I took the test. It was actually a very interesting test. I, I learned I would be a terrible linguist. I had 
bad spatial abilities to know what two parts fit together, but I had a really strong aptitude to be a cryptanalyst. So I wow. ended up uh, <laughs> going to NSA to be a cryptanalyst, despite my dad's telling me there's no future in that. Because again, in 84, the only place that was doing cybersecurity was NSA. So it looked like a real dead end job. But I went there. I loved it. I was there for six years. And luckily, a cybersecurity industry kind of blossomed in the 90s and 2000s. Brilliant. I'll tell you something. Um, the same year, I graduated from a university in New York, and they offered me a position in Solomon Brothers, the banking firm at the time, either to be a junior COBOL programmer or to go into network security. And I really didn't like programming. <laughs> and <laughs> actually, it was network operations. So I decided on the network operations. And, and after like a few months, they moved me into network security. And a couple of years later, I moved out to LA and I worked for TRW Space and Defense in network security specific. So interesting yep. the way that uh, same time frame too. Yeah, and I think that's, it was sort of the same with ICS and it served me well. I mean, I, I can't say I haven't had some setbacks like any career would have, but just going to the things that I find interesting has served me well, you know, despite on a pure logical basis, maybe not being the right career move, it, it certainly has served me well and, and led to an enjoyable career. Definitely. So I, I'm curious, as a leader in the space, you have a very interesting point of view because you're seeing things from both the vendor side and the asset owner side, but also from the regulator side. So what do you think are the main trends you see in the ICS and IoT security in the coming future, taking into account all of these different stakeholders? Well, it's, it's funny because there's what I think is going to happen and what I would hope would happen. And they're not, unfortunately, <laughs> not always the same. Right. And, and that's kind of a big question. So maybe, you know, and I'm curious what you guys think as well, just kicking this around a little bit, but we're seeing a real move towards this concept of cyber hygiene. And, you know, the probably the latest Evidence of this is the cybersecurity performance goals that came out from DHS uh, a week or so ago. I'm not sure when this is going to come out, but in early November, those came out. And cyber hygiene isn't bad. I mean, the term is so attractive, right? How can you be against hygiene? You know, it's like, how can you be against right. holistic? You know, there's some terms we use that sound really good, but are they really what we should be doing? And so we're getting this increasing checklist from a number of sources, from industry standards, from very much so from the government. They have multiple documents. And this is happening in Europe with NIS. This is happening in Singapore with theirs. This is happening around the world. You're seeing insurance companies now. If you want cyber insurance, they're sending you checklists. You're actually seeing asset owners as responding to that, sending their vendors checklists. And you're seeing now the, the concept of regulation creating checklists. All these security controls aren't a bad thing, but they might not be, I would argue, they aren't necessarily what we should be doing to address cyber risk. And we seem to have lost our risk-based focus in this pursuit of cyber hygiene. And unfortunately, I think that trend's going to continue no matter how much I shout against it. You know, I'm, I really think our big wins could be in consequence reduction. And there's been some talk of, of consequence reduction. You know, consequence is one side of the risk equation. It's something that caps risk. You know, if you know 
a cyber attack can only cause, let's say, a one-day outage because you can recover manually or something. Right. That's that's huge. But we seem to just keep thinking if we layer more and more cyber hygiene on this, we're going to prevent attacks from succeeding, even though all the experts say it's not a question of if, it's a question of when, but we don't seem to be reacting that way from a risk management standpoint. Right. I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, learning what we have learned from from the IT cybersecurity world, we saw kind of a similar transition, right? Where, where people talked about hygiene and sort of general cybersecurity for a long time until they realized if they're not managing it appropriately according to the actual risk, it's really an impossible task and, and also like a resource-intensive, time-intensive kind of task that leads you nowhere eventually. So it's interesting to see how the same kind of evolution is now happening in the ICS space. Yeah, and hopefully what we're going to see is, you know, we're starting to see the CISO get involved, right? Before it was just operations in this island, give us a, a big capital expenditure every 20 years and we'll put it in and just stay away from us. Mm-hmm. But then the board started holding the CISO responsible. This is in progress. Some boards already have, some boards are. They're saying, hey, you own this cybersecurity. You own OT. You own all T, not just IT. You own all the T. And the CISO, if they own it, they're not going to say, oh, I'm not going to look at it. I'm not going to touch it. They want to get involved. So that's the transition we're seeing now. The transition we really need, though, which I unfortunately I think is a few years away, but if you're an asset owner and you want to start doing the right thing now is to get the chief risk officer involved because you know, cybersecurity isn't there as an end goal. Cybersecurity is designed to address risk. And we see all the time that operations, even IT and IT security don't really understand what matters to the company. They think this thing is a disaster when the company might say, eh, you know, that's okay. But if this other thing happens, that's terrible. Right. So we, yeah. we need to start to see the chief risk officer get involved. And again, I think that's the future. It's just a question of, is it something that's going to happen a year, two years, seven years, what the time frame is? Yeah. You know, I learned this for the first time when I was visiting a bank back in, uh, must have been about 10 years ago, uh, working for an endpoint security company. And they said that they were hit by ransomware. I think it was 2015, so maybe seven years ago. And I said to them, so what kind of controls are you going to put into place? They said, none. It'll cost me $2 million to put the controls into place. And then I pay off 50,000 pound in order to get my keys back, you know, to the server. So that means I could, you know, unless they raise the price, I can go, what is it, 40 years without having to do the work. And so I think this risk cost equation is definitely one that will come into play because like you said, uh, you can't get 100% secure. So. And I think it's really interesting. There's a, I guess, an increased attention on what's called the cyber poor, the small to medium sized companies that really, you know, they might have one or two people. You think of a small water utility that might have two or three people in IT that do everything from the mail server to the VP's laptop that's constantly breaking to now the entire water treatment system. What are the odds that they are going to put in? A, a system that even has a very low likelihood of attack. But if you look at Oldsmar down in Florida, you know, that has gotten so much press that they got hacked and someone supposedly tried to dump a bunch of chemicals in the system, 
that system had so many checks to prevent that chemical from actually reaching the end users, both technical and human checks throughout the process. And most small water systems have the capability to be run manually. You know, this, this automation is just something that makes their life easier. You could make the case that they should spend their money making sure they have that ability to run if the ICS is completely unavailable or completely corrupted, that that would be their best expenditure. They probably have it now. It's just a matter of shoring that up and having more confidence in it. And that doesn't mean you don't put some security controls in place so you don't have to reduce likelihood or that you don't have to run manually every week. But seriously, if they have to run manually once a year for a day, how much of a disaster is that? No impact on their customers, minimal impact on their expenses. Probably their biggest risk is or impact is to their reputation. And again, with the right incident response planning on how they're going to have a media strategy, they can even address that. So I, again, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of opportunity for people to look at the risk side of or the consequence side of the risk equation. So you wrote recently about the budget challenges in industrial cybersecurity, which is a topic that we find extremely timely and important. So with limited resources on both the talent side and the budget side, how can product security teams cope with exactly this, you know, putting into place the right cybersecurity on one hand and also doing, you know, that risk model on the other? Well, I think one of the things that's coming out it's kind of a, a side benefit. I, I don't do a lot of consulting anymore. I spend most of my time on, on my S4 event, but I was out at a site last month and the CISO wanted to go out in the field just to show his face and learn a little bit more because he recently had gotten responsibility for this. One of the things that I, you know, should have been obvious, but I hadn't really thought about was the people in ops were so happy that I was able to come out there and help them. And they said they've been trying to do it for years, but they couldn't do it because they didn't have budget. But once the CISO took control, all of a sudden they had budget. And then I talked to the CISO later and he said, yeah, the money they're asking for is small. You know, he's like, I've got this gigantic budget. They're asking for the small chunk. And what we found is that operations has lived on almost nothing because they weren't very good at asking for operational expenditures. They were good at these big CapExes. They didn't have that budget muscle. They didn't know how to ask for the money. And they almost had lost going in because they thought it was a lot of money when they asked for it. If you ever, it's like if you're selling something and you think, oh, my product costs so much, you've almost lost before you went in. They would go in asking for a tiny little little slice and being fearful they were asking for a lot. So one of the things I've, I've told ops for years is if they let's say the CISO now isn't running their budget. They're trying to get their own. I said, if you can take a look at the IT budget and the IT security budget, you will see it's massive. Look at what they're spending money on. And you and operations are responsible for the reason the company exists in most cases, right? You're Mm -hmm. manufacturing the product or service. That's the whole reason the company exists. It really shouldn't be that hard to get that kind of money for them because as a percentage, it's a small amount of the budget for the critical thing. Admittedly, the tricky thing is it's an increase. So they were asking for zero or nothing, and now they're asking for something. So you do run into that headwind, but to me, that's that's a headwind I'd feel pretty confident of overcoming. 
And was it enough budget, do you think, that it would cover what they really need in order to protect their systems? Yes and no. <laughs> I mean, I haven't run into a case with a large company. Now, again, you, you have the cyber poor problem, right? Where they just, they don't have money. And especially in some of the regulated industries where they can't raise rates, right? The rate is fixed. So you're, you're talking about a, a fixed amount of money. It's a little bit harder there where you have to justify the rate. But in a commercial company, let's say a manufacturing company, I haven't run into the case where the funding was the big hurdle. What ends up happening more is once the board and the executives understand the risk, <laughs> they want to solve that risk so fast. So it's like, how much money do we need to spend to solve this in six months? And then you're kind of putting up your hands and you say, whoa, 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 you can't solve this whole thing in six months. We can do this much now, and then we can do this much next year. And here's the roadmap and here's how we're going to get where you want to get. You know, maybe we spend a little more, we accelerate that, but you're not going to go from an immature system to the system you want with full maturity in six months. Again, I, I don't think if you're making the case properly to the board, you should have a problem. Now, if you're just saying we need all these security controls, why? Because we need them. That's not a very good case. You, you need to look at their risk right. matrix. They're worried about things like customer impact, financial loss, environmental loss, safety. If you can make that case on their risk matrix in a way that they believe it, you get funded. And especially if one of the competitive organizations or you know, one of the similar types of uh, companies had a hack recently, they could put in front of them and say, look at the brand damage. We don't want that here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that certainly helps. There's There's been such an awareness growth in boards that I don't think that's the biggest hurdle these days. You, you will right. get those spurs that will drive immediate activity. And you will get cases where, you know, we have some big companies in the ICS security space, companies with over a billion dollar market cap now, you know, a couple of them. Their marketing message has reached the board. And you, it's not unusual to get a board member now or a CEO to, to talk to someone in ops or the CISO and say, what are we doing about this? You know, I just heard my competitor is doing this. I got a call one time from uh, a food and beverage company. And I always ask them, you know, why, why did you call? What, what made you interested in security? And they said, oh, I was sitting at an event next to the COO of Coca-Cola and he was telling me everything he was doing. So I went back and asked my team we weren't doing it. So that kicked off the effort. Mm -hmm. We actually saw recently in the Emerson annual report from last year, they had one of their risk factors was specifically geared at cybersecurity uh, for the devices and their control systems. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I don't think awareness is our biggest hurdle right now. Right. We're getting the funding. Obviously, people always want more. We're getting the funding. And now I think the bigger concern is, are we using it wisely? Are we just yeah. checking boxes or are we really making a difference? Right. So I have a bit of a controversial question. The issue of who's responsible for cybersecurity or, or specifically product security, right? That's, that's an interesting one. So if you talk to different people, you hear different kind of answers. Uh, is it the IT, the OT, the vendor maybe? Uh, maybe even procurement is something we've heard. So I'm curious... What do you think? What's your take on this? Who should really be responsible for that in, in the short term, in the long term, et cetera? 
Well, I, I'd like to push it down to whoever's responsible for the rest of the project. So you're, you're putting in, let's say, a new control system. There's a project plan. There's an RFP. That RFP should have a security section. You should specify what you want. You have acceptance testing. Factory acceptance test, site acceptance test should have a security section. So in the end, I, I would say it's, it's operations that's, you know, you use the keyword, they're responsible. Now, who they task to do the work, who they rely on to do the work, that is an OT security professional probably. Right. Whether that OT security professional reports up to operations or reports up to IT. To me, I've seen it work all different ways. And I think sometimes we make too big of a deal of it. You know, you both have had careers before getting into ICS. If, if you've dealt with IT, IT, you know, and there are subgroups in IT, the same system, in, you know, that ran the old database and the ERP systems. And now the cloud services are not the same people that do desktop support, if there's right, even desktop right. support anymore. Right. You know, they're different groups and OT tends to, or operations tends to just deal with the desktop group and they think that is IT. They don't realize that IT has all these special specializations in it. And those specializations might deal with the finance department for certain applications, human resources for other applications. Well, now all of a sudden there's going to be a subgroup that deals with OT. And where that subgroup sits, I think, is less important than, than you realize it's a specialized technology just like those other areas and it needs to sit somewhere. Right. Makes a lot of sense. I guess along those lines, there are those who in the critical infrastructure space who say that you know, IT security and even OT security of the networks have been most prominent and the security of the devices and the control systems themselves is way behind. What do you think about that? <laughs> well, as I'm not sure if I coined it or just said it the most times, but this, this concept of insecure by design is <laughs> something that I've harped on over and over again since about 2012 the protocols and the end devices, specifically what we call the level one devices, the devices that are actually communicating with the sensors and actuators, the things you hear mm -hmm. called PLCs and controllers, the protocol that communicates with them, and oftentimes those devices themselves are what I call insecure by design in that they're working exactly as they were supposed to work, but they had no authentication in them. So mm -hmm. if you want them to do something, you send them a command to do it and they'll say, Yes, sir, I'll do it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that can even be not only turn this thing on or off, but it could be change the logic, change the recipe. In some cases, it can even be load new firmware. So what we're in a case where once you can get access to the devices actually running the process, access is equal to compromise. You're not hacking anymore. Really what you need is engineering and automation skills, not mm -hmm. hacking skills. You need to figure out how to tell it to do what you want it to do. And so yeah. you're exactly right. There's some hope that'll change. For example, there's Ethernet IP, which is a protocol Rockwell Automation uses and others, but Rockwell's a Rockwell Automation is a big one. There's, there's now a secure version of that wrapped in TLS. There's a secure version of Modbus. We're seeing signed firmware now in these systems. I even have at, at S4 this next year, we even have some endpoint detection products designed for endpoint detection 
ideas for PLCs. So we're getting there. But the big question is now that this stuff is starting to exist, will the asset owners actually deploy it? Because <laughs> if you're going to have this encryption, now all of a sudden you need key management and you need to start deploying certificates and that's work. Right. And we haven't so far, I mean, we're only one or two years into when this stuff has been available. We have seen very, very slow, little or no use of this new technology, right, which will right. make it interesting for an ICS vendor. If you say, I did all this, you didn't use it. What is the rationale to do more? You just right. say, my customers don't want it. I'm not going to spend money and time providing it. Yep. They're having enough of an issue handling the legacy systems that are coming online and trying to make sure that those systems have some kind of uh, security on them. So it's uh, very interesting. Well, that might be a losing battle. I mean, that, that might be, if we, if we just said from this date forward, you know, from November, 2022, we are going to not deploy insecure by design systems. It would be a start because where we started this, I got into this field in 2000, I saw Eric Byers in about 2004 do a demo how he could turn lights on and off from his laptop um, <laughs> over because Modbus was insecure by design. And I heard it would take decades to solve this problem. Well, we're about two decades in now and, and we're in the same place. So you know, right. if we can start to put a stake in the ground, uh, this is one of the things I've been very disappointed in, in DHS is they still and I harp on them a lot, still two decades later, they haven't said to asset owners, you need a plan to get rid of this insecure by design nature of your control systems in the next, you know, three to five years or something like that. It's, right. it's just silence. So we may live with it for another decade. At this rate, if you were betting, the odds would be that you would bet against it being solved. So I'm curious on a different topic. Uh, you, you had such a varied career, and I'm I'm curious, what's the most amazing or, or unbelievable moment you you've had or you witnessed in the cybersecurity world? <laughs> well, the most unbelievable were probably with the government. I can't talk about those. Uh, in the ICS world, I don't know that it's a security thing that gets my attention most. It, it's probably one or two things. One is one is a very sad thing. About every every second or third year, I would visit a site where someone had died in the not too distant past. That really wakes you up that these things uh, have real risk associated with them. You you'll walk through a place and they'll say, "Be careful there," you know, and then they'll tell you a story, and it's a really sad story. So this is this is real world out there in the field. It's you know, it's not just dealing with computers and cables and such. The happier one is you learn things about processes that you never think of, and they're just absolutely amazing. Like when I was dealing with the natural gas pipeline, I never thought about where you store natural gas. And I learned that like in the Northeastern United States, they pumped natural gas out of the ground. They got it out of the ground. And now when they get natural gas from Canada, they put it back in the ground because they know how much they took out. And they actually store natural gas in the ground. Or you go into a candy factory and you watch how they're making candy and how they swirl the thing and how it goes all the way from a, a mixer all the way to a package thing into a crate. I mean, just the automation and the processes themselves. Every time I'm in a new sector, I'm just, there's always something I learn. In pipelines, I just always thought 
it's really silly. After the fact, you usually say, well, of course that makes sense. In a pipeline, I always thought it was the same you know, oil or liquid going through that pipeline. But when you think about it, no, that doesn't make sense. We have all sorts of liquids. So pipelines actually send many different products through them and the transition between products and getting them in the right tanks is extremely important. And I just always assumed, you know, you had this pipeline and the same thing flowed through it all the time. So I think the most amazing and interesting things I see are probably things outside of security, but are really involved in the process and the industries and and the amazing things that these people do. We sometimes, we have to be really careful. Sometimes one of the problems with security professionals is we understand our field so well. We go into these places where they have little or no security and we kind of shake our heads and like, what are these people doing? Are these people idiots? Don't they understand this risk? And there's a tendency to not realize that these people are also the same brilliant people that are running a complex process with two or three people because they were able to engineer it and do this automation and do it with a reliability that's just amazing. So it's, it's you know, we kind of have to have a little humility. Yes, they might be not where they need to be in security, but boy, they're really good at this other thing. Yeah, yeah. The things that are running the world, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and that's not an excuse. We need to we need to solve this problem. We need to get better. But you know, to give them just a little more credit, they probably didn't go through engineering school, and some of them have masters and and all this career yeah. to be patching yeah. things. You know, that, they don't yeah, have yeah. a goal to be security professionals, and and they really don't want to do that. They want to stick to what they actually learned and what they're what they enjoy. And also, these industries are built of. Hundreds of years of of knowledge and you know workflows and things they've built through the years and security they're they're new to this and when you think about it about the the difference between these two timelines you you, you get it right it's a whole other challenge right mm-hmm. so that's good so I think that brings us to our last question very timely do you have practical tips for product security teams going into 2023 the same type of people that sometimes you're meeting in these you know organizations that have done such amazing engineering work, but maybe they need a little bit of help uh, on the security side. Yeah, I actually, my probably my biggest tip, this is credit to the vendors. A lot of the vendors have secure deployment guides now. And when we go out and look at these things, I'm amazed at the amount of times those are just completely ignored. The team that installed it had been installing systems like this for the last two decades. They install it the same way. They don't look at this. Sometimes it's even the vendor's own team that would deploy it. I've, I've been in places where I've said, hey guys, you didn't, you know, you didn't deploy this securely. And said, no, 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 what you say won't work. And then I pull out their own company's secure deployment guide. <laughs> I say, here's what your company says is the right way to put it in. This is how you have to put it in. Now, ideally that would be part of the RFP and the site acceptance test. You know, that wouldn't be something that you bring someone in after the fact to find. Probably my biggest thing for an asset owner would be look at those secure deployment guides and use them. I think from a a vendor, an ICS vendor, we're really, and this this ties to the, the asset owners as well, we're seeing a lot of these people have good processes documented but not followed. So they have security development life cycles and such and one of the tests we do usually as part of a factory acceptance test is we'll say, okay, we're going to do an audit of the security development life cycle. 
Or now increasingly you're hearing about S-bombs. You know, do you have an S-bomb? Are you maintaining it? As a, as a product vendor, you want to make sure you're doing that. As an asset owner, you don't need to be an expert in this. But you say, okay, the security development life cycle says you do fuzz testing. You have a threat model. Show that to me. Just actually, if they can't produce that document in pretty fast fashion, it probably didn't happen. You know, do you have an S-bomb? Show me your S-bomb. Scroll through that S-bomb. Are the components really old? You know, are they running 10-year-old versions? Ask for an S-bomb a few versions back. Does it exist? And that'll give you some feel as to the level of control the product vendor has. Without, again, this is something you can do. This is not days and days. This is minutes or hours to do that type of check. So uh, I think it's that's a perfect way to end this conversation. So Dale, uh, thank you very much. It's been uh, fascinating, really, both the personal stories and the, the professional ones. So all, all we can say is keep on doing what you're doing because uh, we're all the, the better for it. And thank you for the time. Oh, you're welcome. And I enjoyed it. Left to Our Own Devices is brought to you by Cybellum. To learn more, visit cybellum.com.